So we're going to turn tonight and, and turn even now to Psalm 17. Psalm 17. Hear God's word from Psalm 17. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing, and now the proclamation of his word. It's a pretty good guess most of the time that David writes in the midst of turmoil and battle and enemies. And this particular psalm he writes in the midst of, I mean, some event where enemies are after him. You really can kind of throw a dart at the life of David and find a time when he was dealing with these things. And he comes to the Lord in prayer and pleads for justice. He pleads for the right to be brought down. He begins there by pleading his own innocence, and and then he gives an account of of his enemies and and pleads for the Lord to overthrow them. And and there in the last several verses, he discusses sort of the destinies of, of the wicked and the destinies of the righteous. And the whole purpose of this psalm is to push us to trust the Lord in all things and remember that He is with us. You know, David has this unique way of of writing out of the midst of affliction, but writing with such righteousness and and uprightness that, that he gives the right example of how to live in affliction and difficulty. We're really just going to work our way through verse by verse and see the, the progress of his thought and the progress of his prayer. You see there in the beginning, he, he starts in verse 1, hear a just cause. He's appealing to God for, for help um, 
on the basis of justice and righteousness. And, and in this particular case, the, the basis of his argument is his own piety, his own uprightness. He's declaring his own innocence and, and calling God to respond to his difficult situation because he is innocent. Because he has done nothing wrong. I mean, you just look, hear a just cause, attend my cry, give ear to my prayers from these lips that are free of deceit. There's a contrast to his enemies, certainly. Vindicate me. Come, come and, and behold the right. He's calling God to look at him and to see that he has been correct and righteous in all of these things. Verse three, you, you know my heart. And he says to the Lord, you, you have visited me. I have not endeavored um, to, to sin. In fact, I have, I have tried to keep my mouth from transgression. So much of David's, uh, uh, so, so many of David's enemies would, would speak against him. Think of that whole matter with his son and, and, and how he, he stirred up the kingdom against David simply with his words. But David declares, I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. There, verse 4, um, I've avoided the way of the violent. Verse 5, I've, I've been, um, I have not been moved from, from your ways, O Lord. My feet have not slipped from your paths. I've, I've stuck close to the way that you've called me to walk. Essentially, David says, Lord, come and, and redeem me. Come and vindicate me. Come and save me. Because I have done nothing to deserve the wickedness that my enemies are throwing at me. It's really kind of bold, isn't it? I mean, what would it look like to you if I stood up here tonight, if, when we had prayed earlier, if I had said, Lord, I come to you because I'm, I'm, I'm good and I'm righteous and I need you to listen to me and, and come and help me because I have not strayed from your ways. And, you know, most of you would walk out of the room because you know me well enough to, to I've probably offended you in some way in the last 36 hours, you know, it doesn't take much. It, it, it's a bold and brash prayer that he, that he offers up, isn't it? David wasn't Jesus. Jesus would come from his seed. But he certainly was not the Messiah. He's a sinner just like you and me. We, we can all think of sort of that one looming thing in the life of David that happens at the beginning of 2 Samuel. There's plenty of other times that David did foolish things, things that weren't advised by God's word, things that, that transgressed from the path that God had called him to walk. All right, we might even read these first five verses and go, really, David wrote this? But it's, it's not unusual for the Bible to speak about men like this in this way. And just as one example, I want to, to remind you of the way the Bible talks about Job. At the beginning of the book of Job, in, in chapter 1, verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So at the beginning of Job, he, God kind of speaks in this blameless way about Job. And then at the end of Job, he's, he, God himself speaks to Eliphaz and, and the other two um, friends, we might call them the poor advisors. He says, now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. God calls Job, at the beginning and at the end, blameless and upright. 
But notice that, that this is not the same thing as God saying that Job is sinless. Blamelessness and sinlessness are not the same. And, and David, when he writes, is, is not seeking to establish his own perfect righteousness. He's not seeking to establish a case of sinlessness before the Lord, but simply one of blamelessness. You know, sometimes you may have two of your children come and, and, and they've been fighting, right? And it looks like both of them have done something wrong, but you actually begin to, to piece it out and you realize that one of them actually didn't do anything wrong. They just kind of got caught up, you know, in, in the crosshairs of their sibling. Well, in many ways, this is sort of what's going on with David. He's, he's gotten caught up in the crosshairs of his enemies and he pleads for God to deliver him by pleading, Lord, I have sought to walk with you and I have, I have done nothing intentional that would bring them upon me. Vindicate me. Come make things right. He prays on the basis of his standing before God. And we can pray in the same way. Now, not in the way that I discussed a moment ago. Not really based on our own standing. Our own deeds are never the basis of our prayers. Jesus' deeds are the basis of our prayers. The entirety of his work on our behalf and, and without knowing it, David is sort of praying in this direction. He's, he's used as a type of Christ, as one that points to him for us. He, he's, he's praying in this way so that we can go to God and we can say, Lord, we, we come to you in the name of Jesus because he has brought us in. His blood has covered our sin. His righteousness has been counted to us. And so we can come to you freely as children who have been adopted by our Heavenly Father, not because of how good we are, but because of how good Christ is. Because of all of the work that He has accomplished and counted to us and brought us in. This is why the veil was torn that night when Christ was mounted up on Calvary. Because in Him, those who trust Him, those who come to Christ, can come to God. Because he has, he has taken down the dividing wall. Not just the dividing wall that exists between us, but the dividing wall that exists between us and God. We come freely, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. David points us in that direction. It's because of Jesus that we can come to God. And it's because of Jesus that we can come and plead and pray to God for Him to hear us and respond. And the next thing that David shows us, beginning there in verse 6, is, is what we should pray, is, is, is the content of our prayers as we come to Him. We need to come pleading the promises of God. We don't come in our own strength. And really, in some sense, we don't come with our own words either. We come with the promises that God has already provided. David appeals um, as a righteous man the Lord using him in the scripture to point us to Jesus. But then he also appeals to him, to God here, as a friend. It's, it's, it's really six through, through nine, but mostly seven and eight. Look at verse seven. 
Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. That phrase, you may have a different word in your Bible, steadfast love, is, is that word that's often translated loving kindness. It is the, um, it's the covenant love of God. It's the love of God that is special to His people. It's, 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 a, it's a word that describes His covenant faithfulness. It's, that, um, it's that, that persistent refusal of God to, to leave us alone. It's that love that, that torments us, as it were, that is always pursuing us. It's that devotion that God has to His people, that, that He will never leave them and He will never forsake them. And David here appeals to that. Wondrously show that that covenantal devoted love to those who are seeking salvation and freedom in you. Verse 8, you, you keep me protected from my enemies. What's he say? He, he asks to be kept close to the Lord as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Draw me in near so that I can be protected in that covenantal, faithful, devoted love. David here is praying in the midst of these attacks, whatever they may be. And he says, Lord, you have promised to be near to me. You have promised to preserve me. And how bold is this? Now come and do it. You have promised. Now come fulfill that promise. You know, that prayer, even for David, didn't, well, it likely didn't look the way that he thought it would look. He prayed like this all the time. He might not have realized that his son would try to take the kingdom from him. He might not have realized that, that he was going to fight all of his own sin and the Lord would have to, to turn that whole Bathsheba mess around and, and really wind up working good for David and good for the kingdom and good for God's glory. I mean, he, he didn't realize what his prayers would bring along in his life. And when we pray the promises of God, it may not always look the way that we want it to look when he responds to those prayers. But this is how we pray. We pray the promises of God. And we know by virtue of who God is, that He will answer these prayers. God is immutable. Right? That's, that's one of the words we're not supposed to use at Bill Reddit's funeral, right? Immutable. He's unchangeable. It doesn't mean that God doesn't change. It means that He can't change. It means that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he never changes. He can't. It, it's, it's something that God cannot do. And so when He speaks a promise... It will never fail because it cannot change and his word will come to pass. And joined with that is, is his, his all-powerful nature that, that he can accomplish everything that he sets out to accomplish. And there's nothing that's too hard for him. And so we, just like David, can pray with confidence. We don't wonder if God hears, we don't wonder if he'll respond. We don't sort of 
throw up words hoping that something will stick and that some sort of magical event will take place and, and our prayers will be answered. We pray with confidence, standing on the promises He has given us in His Word and saying, Lord, You have promised. Now come and do this. This is why Bible intake, as it were, and prayer are so interconnected. Because prayer absolutely must be a returning of God's word to his throne of grace through our Savior Jesus. We, we, we will never pray properly if we don't read the Bible. And so our prayers become, Lord, supply every need of mine according to your riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You know, and sometimes we may not know exactly what that's going to look like. But we know that he'll answer because he says he will. Father, I, I can't possibly see how anything happening right now could possibly be turned for good, but you've told us in Romans 8 that everything will work in that direction. And so I trust you and, and I plead with you, Lord, that you would come and make sure of that promise here and now. Bring good. Bring glory. Lord, I'm passing through troubled waters. I don't know how to fight this sin. Lord, come and be with me. I'm going through the, the rivers. Let them not overwhelm me. I'm going through the fires. I'm going through the flames. Keep me from being burned. Keep me from being consumed. And we know that he has promised to keep us. And what that keeping looks like in particular, again, we know not. But we know that He will answer according to His Word. Beloved, find the promises in the Bible and make them your prayers for everyday living. He turns His attention to His enemies. There at the beginning of 10, all, all the way down through 14, He sort of refers to them. A little bit as in every verse as he goes. It, these verses describe in the first place the heartlessness of David's enemies. Right there in verse 10, they close their hearts to pity. They speak arrogantly. They've surrounded David there in verse 11. They've, they've set their eyes to, to cast him to the ground. They're like lions who are lurking, eager to tear him apart. As David observes his enemies, he, he makes two statements about their um, destinies. First, he, he says that their eventual encounter with God will stop them in their tracks. Look at verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. This is kind of like what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Where he says that now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight sent through the law comes knowledge of sin. Every mouth will be stopped when we stand before God on that day of judgment by his law. We will have nothing to say. That's what David's saying. He's, Lord, confront them, subdue them, stop their mouths, stop them in their tracks. Do you remember the way that, that the author describes the lions um, in Daniel chapter 6, right? The, the king had, had cast Daniel into the den. 
And he was concerned that, that he would not survive the night, and he had right concern for that. It was the lion's den. Um, and he gets up the next morning and he goes. And what does Daniel say? It's okay. The Lord stopped the mouths of the lions. One day every mouth will be stopped. The accuser's mouth, who, who seeks to throw God's people off the path of righteousness, one day he will never say a single thing to you ever again. He will never rise up against any of God's people ever again, for the Lord will stop his mouth. He will confront him and subdue him. One day your sin will have no power over you. One day that remaining corruption, right? Our sin has been subdued as we belong to Christ. But it's still there. And the remnants of it are strong. Not so strong as Jesus. But still one day we say that our sin will be confronted and subdued and it will no longer have any say in our life. Secondly, David declares about these enemies of his that the Lord will heap upon them the worldly things that they love so much. It's really an interesting turn of phrase here in verse 14. Um, For from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. It's it, well. First of all, let's just let's just say that David says some weird stuff sometimes. Um, their womb is filled with treasure. He's saying that that the Lord continues to give them that thing that they think will make them happy. Their womb is filled with with treasure, we may say. Put some air quotes around it. And they are satisfied with with the children that they birth, with with that treasure that they produce of themselves. And they leave their abundance to their infants. They they are satisfied with all of these earthly things. The implication is that the only benefit that these people, these enemies of God, these enemies of David, the only benefit that they will ever receive are these worldly things that the Lord continues to give them. You've heard it said, if you make this world your heaven, it's the only heaven you'll ever know. That's what he's saying. He's, he's, the Lord will give them over. It's, it's, it's just, I mean, certainly Paul in, in some part was thinking about well, many of the Psalms when he wrote in Romans chapter 1, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. God, God, Romans 1 paints this picture that that the people that continue to turn away from God and turn to the things that they'd rather worship instead, God will continue to say, okay, 
okay, and they descend more and more and more into wickedness and rebellion. So that God will say through Paul in Romans 2, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Do you see how David is almost pronouncing a curse upon them? That, that the Lord has filled their womb with treasure and they are satisfied with what they birth and that they will leave their abundance to their infants. And what will happen on that day of judgment to these who have come against God's people? Well, he will judge them in righteousness. And they will meet their end. For on that day of wrath, God's judgment will be fully revealed. It's really rather sad, isn't it? That, that, that what they think will save them, God continues to let them have. And on that day, when they arrive before the judgment seat of Christ, it will, they will be told that, that nothing of what they have ever done has any hope of delivering them from the righteous judgment of God. Be careful. You know, David's speaking of his enemies, but there's still a warning for us as we read to not make this world your, your heaven and to not store up treasures for yourself. Don't, don't make this world... Uh, verse 14, these, these men of the world whose portion is in this life. Beloved, in Christ, our portion is in the next life, not in this one. We must work for heaven and set our sights on glory. Lastly, as, as we get out of verse 14, this, this, um, there's this contrasted statement of verse 15. It's a dramatic contrast to the wicked that he just referenced. Verse 4, 15, As for me, David says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. There's a couple of things here to pay attention to. The first is that that word satisfied towards the end of verse 15 is the same word for satisfied that's used in verse 14. The wicked will be satisfied with the world that will be the thing that they most enjoy, where they find all of their life and, and all, of, all of their happiness. But the one who knows the Lord, the one who trusts in Him, the one who's united to Christ and trusts in God, the one, who, the one who draws near to God through the promises that He's provided, the one who's walking with God, He will be satisfied with God Himself. What a wonder, isn't it? that we sometimes think we can be happy with this world when we have God Himself waiting for us. Indeed, we have Him right now. There's not a waiting, really. There's a waiting for fuller com completion. But we have Him now in the ordinances that He's provided. We have God. He is our satisfaction. So let this be your daily prayer, this, this satisfied word, that you would be satisfied with God in Christ that you would be satisfied with what He has given, that you would be satisfied with the hope of glory regardless of what current circumstances look like. Secondly, also notice in verse 15 the word righteousness. It's not there, it's not just sort of the justification righteousness that, that God looks at us in a legal sense and, and counts us as righteous because Christ's works have been counted to our account. 
It's not just a matter of judicial standing. Um, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. One commentator said that that it really needs to be thought more of like this. Um, I said that word too much. You'll, You'll understand. Like can communicate with like. That, that, that we will behold God's face in righteousness and we will be satisfied with his likeness because in glory we will be made like our brother Christ and we will be not God, not God's, but like him in, in holiness, like him in blessedness. We, we will be pleased to be with him and, and we will be sinless like he is in glory. And so we will be happy. This is a promise that that God's people will see Him. It's a promise that we will be like Him because that is where He's taking us. It's the fulfillment of the Beatitude from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We will see Him. Now, mind you, God has no body parts or passions. I don't know how we'll see Him, but we will. And it will be wonderful. And we won't think about this life ever again. Okay, I don't know if that's true. But what would be the point if we get to see God for the rest of our lives, for the rest of eternity? Psalm 17 is seeking to comfort us. It's seeking to comfort us in our ongoing fight with the world and the flesh and the devil. David is writing this prayer out and moving in this direction to remind us as we read, and the Holy Spirit uses it still, that that God is with us. So that we can save those of us in Christ. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Father, please send the Holy Spirit for the sake of your Son to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. Help us. Walk with us. Teach us to set our eyes on the hope of glory. Teach us to to let go of this world so that we may latch on to Christ. Teach us how short our time is that we may shun all things but that which would draw us closer to our Savior. And we ask it in his name. Amen.